but that's okay because you're joining us um, at the key moment. And we're going to pick up today in John chapter 18. But before we dig into this passage in particular, let me give you a quick recap. I'm not going to do three years' worth of sermons. I just want to give you a very quick recap. If you're not familiar with John's gospel, let me tell you basically um, some of how it works. If you want to break John's gospel into half, you would break it at chapter end of chapter 11. Chapters 1 to 11 contain seven signs that show us that Jesus is awesome. Seven signs that reveal the glory of Jesus. The first one is turning water into wine. Then he heals an official son. Then he makes a paralyzed man walk. Then he feeds 5,000 people. Then he walks on water. Then he opens the eyes of the blind. And then he raises a man from the dead. Seven signs that scream at us, Jesus is God. He is magnificent and he's glorious. That's the first 11 chapters. But all the way through chapters 1 to 11, you get this repeated idea that there's something more. Because he keeps saying, my time has not yet come. He's turning water into wine and he's raising the dead, but he keeps saying, but mm, but there's more. My time's not yet come. And then in chapter 12, Jesus announces, the hour has come. And chapter 12 then sets us off on the second half of John's gospel, which shows us that this glorious Son of God is the one who is going to reveal his glory, his ultimate act of glory, by dying on a cross in the place of sinners. And in chapter 12, it's set up. Then in chapters 13 through to 17, Jesus He's away from the crowds. He's just now with his disciples, and he's in an upper room, and he's preparing them, and he's telling them, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. That was the last series we did back whenever it was. Never Alone, John chapters 13 to 17. And so he's been telling his disciples he's going to die, and that brings us to chapter 18. That was a quick summary to catch you up on where we're at. And from John chapter 18... It really becomes deeply emotional, deeply poignant, and deeply powerful. And so I'm going to pray that God would help us by his spirit. And then we're going to read John chapter 18, uh, verses 1 to 14. So let's pray. And even as I lead us in prayer, why not ask now that God would help you to see something more of Jesus? Maybe you're not a Christian. You're here checking out what this Christian thing is. Ask that he'd show you something. Maybe you are a Christian. Perhaps you feel a bit dry, a bit distant. Ask that he would do something today. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this afternoon that this glorious Jesus, this Jesus of all majesty, the one who turns water into wine, the one who makes the seas into his pavement, the one who feeds the hungry and raises the dead, that this glorious Jesus would not just be a figure from history, but would be the reality of our today. That we would see him, that we would worship him, and that we would trust and believe. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, John chapter 18, verse 1. Follow along with me. When he had finished praying... 
Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. Because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So here is this poignant moment, this poignant evening that comes at the end of three hours chapters of Jesus talking to his disciples and then him praying for them and then they go to this garden and Jesus is betrayed. So let me just ask, Alistair, do you want me to change microphone? Let's change. I've made a very... I'll use the handheld. Um, um, fab. Right, John chapter 18. Jesus goes to a garden. And it is dripping with emotion, right? You can see that. I'm just going to wait for you to finish doing that because I, I can't, <laughs> I, I genuinely can't preach with the, uh, I've got a pigeon above me. I've got a, <laughs> I'm nervous the pigeon's going <laughs> to... I feel very vulnerable right now. So I'll do a little stand-up routine while we... Uh... It's all good. Oh, the traumas of church planting. They don't tell you it's going to be like this. Well done, Alice. I don't think anyone noticed. Um... Good, Okay. Now, which one do you want me to use? Great, I've got Mike's mic. 
Okay, let's, let's focus now on this. Great. Jesus is going to a garden. It is dripping with emotion. It is deeply powerful. And what I'm going to show you is I want to take you through this story in three layers. I want to show you uh, something that's on the surface. I want to take you a little bit deeper, and then I want to take you very deep, because I think that's what John does. So let me break this into three scenes. Firstly, I want to show you the garden of betrayal. Right? This is verses 1 to 3, the garden of betrayal. Because at the surface level, what we have here is a tragic story of betrayal. They cross the Kidron Valley. They go into a garden, and it's in that garden that the most horrendous act of betrayal occurs. It's funny, isn't it, really? You've got to get into the... the, um, You've got to let your imagination run with this. We're in a garden. Gardens are places of beauty, right? There's something about being in a garden, particularly if you live in London, right? You go to a garden. It doesn't even have to be very big, and you're like, where is a garden? There's something about gardens that make you feel at peace. There's something almost in human heart that seems to be created for a garden. It's weird. We love gardens. And so Jesus brings his disciples to this place where it's obvious that they've been before, this place that is familiar to them, this place that is home, this place that is comfortable, this place where they feel at peace with one another. And it's here that Judas comes. In a garden, Jesus is betrayed. And Jesus has been to this place many times before with Judas. And let's think about then this moment of betrayal. You see, betrayal is different to just being wronged, isn't it? There's something more painful, more deep about the wounds of betrayal than just the wounds of someone wronging you. Because to be betrayed is to have been entrusted with something. You see, Jesus has entrusted himself to Judas. Judas has been part of his closest band of friends. Look, maybe Judas' feet are still damp from where Jesus had just that evening washed them. Jesus had washed Judas' feet. Maybe Judas can still taste in his mouth the bread that Jesus handed to him. You see, Judas is not some distant nobody who happens to come onto the scene. Judas is one of the closest. Judas is someone who has been entrusted with much. Judas is someone who has experienced Jesus' love. And that's why the betrayal is so painful. Judas comes to the garden. He's guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, they reckon, and there's no way of really knowing, but this language of a detachment is quite technical language. They reckon it was likely to be 200 soldiers at least. 
So we're not talking about a little band of three people coming to arrest Jesus. 200, a, a big group, like a small army, are coming to arrest him. And they're being led by Judas. Oh, but look, it's interesting. What was the valley they crossed? Did you notice? It was the Kidron Valley. And you may say, well, well who cares? Well, the interesting thing is that someone else has walked exactly that path before. Someone else has walked the path from Jerusalem, has crossed the Kidron Valley. Someone closely related to Jesus. One of Jesus' great, 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 great ancestors, a man called David, King David. And you know when King David crossed the Kidron Valley? You can read it in 2 Samuel. David crossed the Kidron Valley when his son, Absalom, betrayed him. You see, this road of betrayal is a road that has been walked before. As Jesus is betrayed in a garden, he follows in the footsteps of King David, who was betrayed by his own son. But you can trace this betrayal even deeper, right? Because this isn't the first time a betrayal has happened in a garden, either. In fact, the very first betrayal that ever took place happened in a garden. In a garden that God had created, a beautiful garden where humanity betrayed God. And they're doing it again. And betrayal is tragic. So let me, let me just push on this a little bit. I just want us to think. Because it would be easy for us to read this and go, no, stupid old Judas. What a baddie. Let's all hate Judas. And we tend to do that, don't we? We've got these traitors in history. You know, if you're into Shakespeare, it's Brute, whatever his face is, et tu Brute. You know, that, and you Brutus, you're going to betray me. Caesar's, it uh, doesn't matter. I was trying to be cultured, right? There were these betrayers, these these traitors of history. It's easy for us to go, look at them, aren't they bad? But can I tell you this week, as I've looked at Judas, I think the seeds of betrayal are in all of our hearts. The seeds of betrayal, the seeds of being entrusted with something and then turning it against someone, that's actually something that's in all of us. Let me try and show you what I mean by, by talking about my mobile phone. Um, so I really want us to push and think about this. When you get a new mobile phone, it is exciting, right? Yeah? Generally. Particularly, if you, imagine that you had enough money to have a really, the best, the best, best new phone. iPhone, who knows, 14? Are we on 14? Really? Wow iPhone 14, you get it out of the box, it's like, this is amazing. You go, I love this phone, I love this phone. And you look at it, you go, I love you. I, I'm, I'm going to be loyal to you, I love you. You are, you are beautiful. And we tell our friends, my phone is so beautiful, it's amazing. You don't love your phone. You genuinely don't love your phone. I can tell you why you don't love your phone. Because in about three years' time, you will hate it because it will be slow 
and it'll be all gunged up with nonsense. And Apple will have slowed down the software, so you can't even update it. And all this stuff is going on. And it's like this. And you'll be, now you're saying, I've got my stupid phone. Right? We, now we've all had this, right? You've gone from, I love it. I love it. I hate it. Stupid thing. Because what you love is not your phone, it's what your phone does for you. And when it stops doing for you what you wanted it to do for you, you don't love it anymore and you betray it. That's Judas. When Judas first met Jesus, he was like, I love Jesus. He's awesome. When Judas first met Jesus, he got caught up in all the excitement. There were miracles happening, water into wine, people rising from the dead, eyes being opened, people being fed. There was miracles happening, and Judas is like, this is awesome. So, of course, he gets involved. And he goes around telling people, Jesus is amazing. And Judas is entrusted with work by Jesus, and Judas is casting out demons. And you can imagine him running back, and I cast out a demon, this is amazing. But he doesn't love Jesus. He only loves the experience of Jesus. And so when the experience is gone, so is his love. Because actually what Judas wanted was never Jesus. He wanted the status. He wanted the power. He wanted the money. He wanted all of that. And if you could have seen him, you'd have said, he's loyal, look at him, he's loyal to Jesus, but he never was. Can I say, that is what has been like a dagger to my heart this week. Because I think I'm like that. I really love Jesus when things are going well. I love telling people how great Jesus is when things are going well. But the moment things get tough, the moment struggle comes, the moment things get a bit difficult, so easy to turn and to say, Jesus, this is your fault. You're not doing this for me anymore. And suddenly you go from loving Jesus to betraying Jesus. How does that happen so quickly? Because he never truly had your heart. So as we see Jesus in this garden of betrayal, Judas stands as a warning to us to say, don't be fooled. Jesus is more glorious than just what he can do for you or just what he can give for you or the buzz that he can fill you with. He's better than that. And betrayal, you see, it grows in Judas. You can trace it through John's gospel. And this betrayal grows. And eventually he gathers these soldiers and he sells Jesus for 30 bits of silver. 30 bits of silver. And he's so foolish because he's seen Jesus calm a storm. He's seen Jesus feed the hungry. He's seen Jesus walk on water. And he thinks that 200 people is going to be enough. No wonder he got quite a lot. Probably they said, well, we'll send five men with you. He goes, well, I've seen some of the things Jesus can do. Can we have more than five? 20? No, let's go 200. You sure? That seems a bit overkill. Believe me, he's really quite powerful. It's ridiculous. And they come, do you see, with torches and lanterns and weapons because they're expecting that Jesus will either hide and they'll need a torch or he'll fight and they'll need a weapon. That's what they're expecting from Jesus. It's a tragic scene. 
And it's a tragedy that we carry the seeds of in all of our hearts. But I want to move on. I want to say the second thing. Because when they get there, it's much more than they ever expected. (laughs) You see, this garden of betrayal, when you push through it, in verses, the next few verses, in verses 5 to 7, you see the, the man of glory. Standing in this garden of betrayal is the man of glory. So verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, even that, right? Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he knew. And you might say, how did he know? He knew because it was all written down. All written down in the Old Testament, the prophecies that said all that would happen. He knew what was going to happen. And Jesus is in complete control. Judas thinks he's in control. He's got the power on his side. He's got the muscle. He's got the might. He's got the weapons. But it's actually Jesus who calls all the shots. Jesus is absolutely in control. So Jesus comes out and says, who is it you want? What a great question. Who is it you want? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. In fact, what he actually says, and I I get why they put the he in there, but actually what he says, and this won't surprise you if you've been in John's gospel, they say, we want Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. I am. It's been one of the repeated things that Jesus has said through the Gospel of John. I am. Why? That's bad English. No wonder they put a he in. Why does he say I am? Well, because that's the name of God. When Moses, hundreds of years earlier, had said to God, what is your name? He'd said, I am. And now here is Jesus who says, I am. They've got to get this right. Come on, you've got to get this. They are, who do they ask for? Jesus of Nazareth. Right? Nazareth, we go, oh, that's nice, sounds cute. Actually, Nazareth is the, is the way of talking about a nowhere place. So back in John chapter 1, do you remember when someone said Jesus comes from Nazareth? <laughs> Nathaniel goes, Nazareth? What could ever come out of Nazareth? What stupid little place. Who cares about that? And so they are using this term. They're saying, we want Jesus of Nazareth. This weak, pathetic nobody. And Jesus says, I am. And in one sense, if you can grasp that, right? Just grasp this for one second. You will grasp the... The big thing that John says over and over in his gospel, which is that the man of Nazareth is the God of glory. That those two things go together. Is he... Isn't it exciting? That's not a comfortable place, is it? No. Choose somewhere different. Yeah, right above me. <laughs> um, good. I, I, can I just say, I was, once, I, I was once in a place where we were, someone was preaching, there was a bat 
That was even worse, right? And it was just circling round and round, and, and it was getting more and more tired and lower and lower. It's all right. Pigeons don't eat humans. Um, I've got to say, if you're listening to the record, can I just say, if you're listening to the recording of this, I should probably explain there's a pigeon flying around. <laughs> Look, come on, back to this. So what we've got to get is that in Jesus, you get these two things put together. Is Jesus Jesus of Nazareth? Is he from Nazareth? That wasn't a trick question. Is he from Nazareth? Yes, he's from Nazareth. Yes, he's from this despised place. Yes, he's become human. He is weak. He is frail. He's unimpressive. He's ordinary. And yet he's the great I am. You see, this is who Jesus is. He is a frail human being and the God of all glory. And can I say, that's actually what we most long for. You see, if all you have is a glorious, kind of, but detached from us, then we can't relate. We go, oh, fine, there's something out there, but it's too far from me. If all we have is someone like me, then I've got a mate, but you can't do a lot for me. But if you could have someone who is both glorious and like me, then suddenly you've got someone who perhaps could help me. I think this is one of the things that we've talked a lot about with the royal family this week. You know, the, the thing that's so powerful, I guess, about the queen is that she's other to us, right? You don't just go running up to the queen and go, hey, queenie, right? You just don't do that. There's a respect, there's a reverence, she's other to us, and yet she is one of us. So she has hard weeks and good weeks, had hard weeks and good weeks. Her family go through troubles like we do. They have births and deaths and marriages. And we sort of live with those because we say she's other to us but like us. And in a much more spectacular way, that's who Jesus is. He is other to us. He is glorious. I am, and yet he is like us. He's from Nazareth. He's from whatever little town you're from that no one's heard of. Mumbles. Isn't that a great place? Anyone here been to Mumbles? A few people have. That's extraordinary. Well done, Mumbles. Can anything good come from Mumbles? Yes. Anyway. So look what happens then. Here is this man who is God. When he says, I am, verse 6 says, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, different people disagree about, some people think that they just sort of all stumbled over and fell over. I, I don't think, I, I think John is saying more than that. I think there is something about the power of Jesus saying, I am, that they fall down before him. Because when you meet the God of glory, you fall before him. You see it over and over again in the Bible. If you meet God, the God of glory, you fall. Because he is so magnificent. And so when Jesus says, I am, and reveals himself as the God of glory, they fall down before him, including Judas, who was standing there. So now they're all flat on their faces. 
because you don't mess around with Jesus. He's too powerful. He's too glorious. And yet now look what happens. Because at that point, he could have walked away and said, see ya, and left. But instead, he asks them again. And this brings us to our third thing. We've seen the garden of betrayal. We've seen the man of glory. But now we need to see the plan of God. And I want you to see just how deep what is happening um, takes us. Have a look what happens next. Verse 7, again he asked them, who is it you want? He gives them another go. He's not finished with them. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I wonder if they said it slightly differently. <laughs> First time, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth? And then Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so the words he'd spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost any of those you gave me. And what happens now is that you see that Jesus, the Lord of glory, the God who has the power to knock over an army with his words, actually has come to do something even more spectacular. We get these little hints now of what Jesus has come to do. He has come to protect his people. He's come to be the one who will die. He's come to be the one who will say, take me, but not them. He will protect them. He's like a shepherd. Right? A shepherd who runs in front of his sheep and says, take, take me, not the sheep. Here comes the lion. The shepherd places himself here and says, take me, not the sheep. And Jesus says, you let those people go. This was Jesus' plan. But of course, now you've got Simon, right? So now you've got Simon Peter. What does he do in verse 10? Well, he pulls out a sword. I mean, you've got to love Peter, right? I mean, you've got to love Peter. He's facing 200, probably 200 men. He's like, I think I've got this. <laughs> Let's do it. I'll take you out one ear at a time. Come on. Bring it on. Because Peter thinks that he can save himself. Peter thinks he's strong enough to fight for himself. Peter thinks that he can bring his own salvation. But Peter's got so much to learn. And he takes a swipe at Malchus. He's probably not aiming for his ear because that would be weird. I see you. I tell you what I'll do. I'll take your ear. He's obviously trying to kill him, right? He's trying to attack. Malchus gets out of the way. He cuts his ear off. And Jesus responds, look, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter, we're not here to fight. And suddenly you discover this deep truth that runs through the pages of John's gospel, that Jesus, this man who is God, knows the God of heaven as his Father, the Father and the Son. And the Father has sent the Son into the world with a work to do. He's been sent with a mission. He's been sent with a job to do. Jesus hasn't just rocked up on his own to have to think about, oh, what do I want to do? This isn't like when you go to a supermarket to browse. You know, when you go to a supermarket, you browse and you wander around, you know, just, just browsing, just looking what's on offer. Let's have a look around the supermarket. Nothing is... It's fine, you're there for a little bit, and you can choose what you want, and then you go. It's very different if you're sent to a supermarket, isn't it? You're sent with a mission. You're sent to get tomato puree. Now you have a mission to do. You can't just leave when you want. There's a job to be done. 
And when someone says, aren't you bored? Why don't you leave? You say, shall I not complete this task that my mother has given me to get tomato puree? And it's difficult because tomato puree isn't next to the ketchup where you think it would be, is it? It's ridiculous. And Jesus says, I've come into this world not to just have a nice little time and share some nice thoughts. I have a mission. The Father has sent me into this world. And what's he sent the Son to do? He sent him to drink a cup. To drink a cup that I deserve to drink. Right, please listen to me as we finish, right? This is so important. I told you earlier that in my heart I see the seeds of betrayal. Betrayal is the worst and the most serious crime that humanity can commit. Betrayal against God. I see the seeds of betrayal in my own heart. That I would take the things God entrusts me and use them for myself. And betrayal deserves punishment. It deserves death. And that cup is the punishment. That's how the Bible talks about it. A cup that I should drink. A cup of poison. A cup of death. That I deserve. That will condemn me forever. But the father said, but I love these people I, w- I want to save. And so he says, son, I want you to go into the world and I want you to drink that cup in their place. I want you to drink it. And the son says, I will come. And he drinks it completely. He drinks the anger of God, the punishment of God. He drinks it on my behalf. He drinks it completely. That is what the Father sent the Son into the world to do. Jesus was never sent just to be a nice teacher. He was never sent to be a great example. He was never sent to be a healer or a miracle worker or a sign producer. He was sent to be a cup drinker. And it is the cup that Jesus drinks that he will drink at the cross as he dies because it's as Jesus dies on the cross that the cup of God's wrath that should come to me was drunk by him completely. What was the valley Jesus walked across? What was the valley Jesus crossed? The Kidron Valley. There's something else you should know about that valley. You've got Jerusalem, where the temple is. And from the side of the temple wall, you get the, the valley, the Kidron Valley, and then up to the garden. In the temple, do you know what's happening? In the temple at this point, it's Passover. They're sacrificing thousands and thousands of lambs. Hundreds of thousands of lambs. And the blood from the sacrifices flows out of the temple and out of channels out of the temple down into the Kidron Valley and fills the brook at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. So as Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley, he crossed that brook of blood knowing that it was his blood and only his blood that would ever ultimately be able to take away the cup we deserve. Do not think as Jesus crossed that brook and saw the blood, he knew what he was going to do the next day.
And so they grab him, they bind him. He's the son of God, he's the Lord of Lords, he's the majestic king, and yet they bound him, only because he said so. And they take him to Anas, they take him to Caiaphas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And then just look at this little clue at the end as we finish. Caiaphas was the one who'd advised the Jewish leaders, it would be good if one man died for the people. He meant that he's causing trouble. It'd be better if he died, and then we would be left alone. But actually what God meant was, he dies to save the people. That's Jesus. Behold the man. Behold him. See his majesty. Let me say then, as we finish this, let me apply this. If you're new to London, can I say this particularly if you're a student, just starting out as a student, or you've just started a new job, or you're just starting in London, you've got a choice to make. It's a choice that all of us face, but I guess at this moment, you face it. Will you betray him? Will you run to him? I urge you, I urge you with all my heart to run to Jesus, to say to Jesus, I need you. I need you to drink the cup for me. And let's be a church family that worships him. Worship, worship, worship. The lamb who was slain. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we read these words. And we want to take a moment just to acknowledge that in our hearts there is the seed of betrayal. Lord, in our hearts, we see the ways in which we are tempted to love you for what you can give us rather than loving you for who you are. Father, we pray, please, that you'd help us to see those seeds of betrayal. But that beyond those seeds, we'd see Jesus, the man who is God. And beyond him, we'd see the great plan that this Jesus would drink the cup we deserve. Oh, Lord, please let us worship him. Let us have hearts that run to him for forgiveness and for mercy. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen.